Welcome to the Fargo Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Fargo on FX. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about season four, episode five, The Birthplace of Civilization. Uh, Aaron, we're halfway through the season at this point, I think. Or are there I 11 so, episodes? Yeah. I, I think there might be 11 episodes. Okay. When you're, when you're halfway through next week's episode, we'll be halfway through the season. <laughs> We're an irrational number yeah. of the way through this episode. I've never been good at season. math. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of this episode? Uh, I thought this was a great. This is a great episode of Fargo. Um, it's you know for mid season. This is about the highest stakes you can possibly imagine the show having. Um, and I've got to really. I mean, <sighs> the death of Doctor Senator, who is a character who has delighted and informed me throughout the season. Like I, I was so bummed out and angry uh, mm-hmm. and got like a genuine reaction because I thought they're going to play. It's like, well, these guys are crazy, but they're not this fucking crazy. Nope. They're this type. They're this type of self-destructive, crazy character. Yeah. Um, and, and where it got Lloyd's Cannon character, which I thought just as, as profoundly arresting as well. Um, it's got me feeling as twins like, God damn you bastard. Why did you do this to the show? But also boy, this 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 was a big chip to cash in narratively. Uh, what what are the stakes going to be three episodes from now? I'm like excited. I'm invested. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was incredible. What do you think? I, I did too. Um, I, I so I have uh, some slight problems with the episode, and they're mostly centered around what I think is everyone's least favorite uh, character, Gaetano. Uh, I, I'm, he, and I'm not going to try to defend that too much. <laughs> I'm not either, but man, the rest of the episode is so good. Uh, it is. It's not just the death of Dr. Cinder, which is monumental. Um, it's also that scene with Rabbi and Josto uh, talking mm. about, you know, the, his his expected plans, uh, Gaetano's expected plans, like he's going to bring guys in and you're going to have to divide them. Otherwise, they multiply. It's it's that so coded good. gangster language and it's catch like that whole scene is brilliantly written. The dialogue just pops and it's it runs the risk of border of of rolling over into like too writerly at, at times. But man, it walks that line and it's super clever and I really appreciated it. Uh, the Dr. Senator stuff that is also amazingly written. Like it's, it's a really long scene, right? It starts. Mm-hmm. I guess it starts when he walks in uh, to the coffee shop and it's probably a 10 minute scene. Um, Could be. Yeah. Between that and when we finally cuts black at the end of the episode it's just, he's one of my favorite characters. He's probably my favorite character. Um, He's certainly the smartest character in the show. uh, And he's one of the most valuable pieces that's just been wiped off the board. And you got to wonder how Loy's going to react to that. Like if he reacts so harshly to his, son being hit by the cops and arrested what's he gonna do when they're killing his consigliere i mean yeah this is no longer pretend war this is no longer you know proxy stuff this is uh it's bad it's bad and i i think it's 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 going to lead to loy calling his banners in uh there's a question about will the Fargo Mafia respond, you know, are they going to actually ride to the rescue? Um, it's a numbers game. You got Cannon versus the Fadas. But on the other hand, the Fadas are divided against themselves. Yeah. With maybe reinforcements to both sides on the way. So 
it's a really complicated political situation here. And I, yeah, I love that, that scene from, uh, with Josto and, uh, Rabbi Mulligan reminded me so much of some of the smarter, um, inner gangster sanctorum scenes from like Miller's crossing. Um, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, I, I, you know, I'm on a real gangster kick and I feel like we, you know, we're going to be doing casino. We just got done doing Goodfellas. Uh, uh, what was another one we just did recently? I, I feel like we ought to do Miller's Crossing sometime early next year just to to, to cap it off because it's 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 a unique take on the the lore. But yeah. um, I, I yeah, I thought this episode was great. And again, yes, uh, everyone saying that uh, we got Nacho Libre in the middle of this <laughs> gothic gangster opera. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I You're don't right. know why it's happening. I can't explain it. It doesn't seem like it's working for anyone, but. You know, sometimes uh, I try to grade that type of stuff on a curve because this is just every once in a while, like my favorite gangster movies will do this. They'll go with like, uh, God, what was the season Bobby Cannavale showed up at on uh, Boardwalk Empire and he's a fucking Mm. maniac. And I'm like, what is this bull in the China? This this intellectual gangster China shop like this. This isn't going to work. This never fucking works. But I, you know. Occasionally it happens. Sometimes you get some dumb fuck cousin brother situation and you can't do nothing about it, apparently. I yeah, I think I, we'll I, talk about it. Yeah, for sure. We will. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? 
Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. The first two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV+, and we'll have a pair of podcasts quantumly linked ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Um, where do you want to start with this episode? Well, I've been I've been dividing. You know, this is uh, this is a very just business type of season. I've been invite, uh, dividing all the plot into everybody's individual businesses, um, and I've kind of got like a blend of structural and chronology going. Uh, I like to start with Ethelreda's business. Okay. In this episode, because that's how we start, and she sets up a lot of the narratives that kind of run through everybody else's business. Um. We have this beginning scene that reminds me a lot of last week to the extent that, like, I'm not even sure if we're not having a bit of a flashback in the same way that, like, episode two uh, flashback to kind of episode one. You know, it's like you had Timothy Oliphant kicking in the door and then you had to back up to get she was writing a letter late at night when the ghost visited her. She's writing a letter again. Is she just writing letters all the time, or do 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 twig on to what I'm talking about here? Uh, she might be writing letters all the time. I don't know. It's it's the 50s. I I have to keep thinking. Like both both shows I'm I, watching currently are taking place in the 50s, which is weird. And she's a smart girl, and I I, I figure that smart girls would be sending more than the average amount of letters to people. Yeah, like, yeah. She and she's not just a smart girl, right? She's Ethelreda Pearl Smutney, so... She's one of a fucking kind, and she might Uh be writing senators, doctor senators, uh, (laughs) congress people... Sure. Mayors, uh, who who knows? Who knows? Um, But she's, uh, in this case, she's... There's simultaneous action of her writing this letter to inform Dr. Harvard of Nurse Mayflower's, um, you know, angel of death routine... While Nurse Mayflower is watching a man whose guts seem to be trying to come out of his asshole. <laughs> sure. That's, that's and, accurate. And she's, what is she doing here? Has she poisoned him and she's mistimed, she's misjudged a dose that's taking longer for him to die than he should? She's bashing her head against the wall. What's happening yeah. here, Jim? I don't know. I feel like this shouldn't have really even been in this episode. Like, if this is all you're going to do with mayflower this episode save it for the next episode where you can do more uh but yeah my read on this is that she is trying to fly a little bit straight at least in the early goings of working at this hospital and that she is bored out of her mind and not being able to kill this guy who's moaning and driving her crazy yeah Um, he's in obvious pain why you know it'd be better for everyone if he would just die right right Right, and, and maybe she can't do it because no one's asked her to, right? Maybe it's like some, you know, vampire can't come into your house sort of thing. I don't know. Um, Which is also kind of name-checked in this episode. Uh, yeah. So. I That's interesting because, like, now I'm thinking this scene's an even bigger failure because I didn't get that. I mean, that's useful information to convey to the audience that uh, Nurse Mayflower is having a hard time. She's, like, really white-knuckling, not killing people because she's at this new job. And juxtaposing that with Ethel Reader writing a letter might be something where Dr. Harvard gets this letter and is like, well, this is ridiculous. She's not mm-hmm. killing people. Um, but it might put her. Yeah, I, I 
because I, I interpret it as, you know, he's, oh, my God, my guts, my guts, I'm dying. She's poisoned him, right? It, it could be, yeah. Uh, um, like I said, that's just my interpretation of it. Um, I find it interesting that, that Etherita is lying about who she is, uh, saying I've worked mm. alongside uh, May- Miss Mayflower for a little, years and years. So. Did she say worked or lived? I thought she said worked. I thought, I thought she, she was like lived. making it her colleague, but you might be right. But it might you, you might be right too, because I was, you know, I was I one of those things where it's like, um, I guess I was hearing what I was wanting to hear, or just <laughs> translating, knowing like, oh, I guess she's lived there for a few years. Maybe she has too, and um, she's well known around the n- funeral parlor. Like her father said that that's mm-hmm. like, you know, that's one of her character traits. She always visits the the people that she loses under her watch, which <laughs> yeah, ominous. Um. But yeah, so her dad busts in and says, hey, it's your birthday tomorrow. Uh, she asks him about laudanum, which I thought he did as a as a dad. He did a remarkable good job of like probably freaking out on the inside. Why is my daughter asking about laudanum? But uh-huh. like not letting like just being like, OK, sure. Here's the information. And she volunteers that she saw it at the nurses and that kind of relaxes him. But he also mentions that, hey, you know, we're, we're kind of outlaws now. Maybe we shouldn't hang around shady racist folks that might want to cause problems for us. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's hilarious the way he describes it. I don't, I don't think this guy has ever completed a sentence in his life. He, he always trails <laughs> that last word off and just kind of shrugs and moves his head a little. I know, I've known guys like that. Yeah. Where it's like, are they even are they even here in, in the plane of reality at all? Um, uh, and, and I mean, when she asks just... if she's going to see her aunt again, he's he says she's just an escaped convict, you know, <laughs> like this is uh-huh. totally kind of normal, right? J- just how matter of fact he is about everything. Like, you know, and yeah. it, uh, honestly, it's uh, I-, I think she might have poisoned us with that pie. So, you know, uh, keep your head on a swivel. That's a weird but... reaction to being poisoned. <sighs> I feel like he's like if you're a white dude running a funeral parlor, married to a white lady or a black lady, uh, sharing uh, and raising a black daughter in in the Midwest in the 1950s, you probably have a layer of circumspection about every interaction you have because else you would just go insane. You go insane <laughs> yeah. with the reality of like half the people in town want you dead. The other half of the half probably want to run you out. And then 25% of people, if they really think about it, like, oh, okay, I guess it's all right. Like, yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it's got to be some kind of defensive reaction. Um, mm-hmm. But, or maybe only a person that obtuse could survive the situation, too. It's like <laughs> right. a selection thing rather than a defensive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, Ethel Rita decides she's going to go uh, visit her auntie. Mm-hmm and her best friend and they show up at the new Paris and explain the difference between squares and convicts and outlaws which I thought was I thought it was a really good conversation especially as it pairs well with uh, Deffy's kind of like reframing all that in a very harsh light towards the end of the episode um but yeah and just like the absolute swagger that she brings to this rule or this role where, you know, are you an outlaw? Are you a square? Are you this? And she's like, I'm I'm Ethel Pearl Smutney. I'm Ethel Rita Pearl Smutney. I'm one of a kind. Yeah. Like, she doesn't play um, by anybody's rules but her own, not even the outlaws. She doesn't, but it's like one of those things where, like, uh, this singular uh, and irrepressible of spirit, it seems doomed to be snuffed out or beat down. And you start to see... Like, you know, in the first episode, like, uh, the principal's got it in for her, always wanting to take her down that peg. Uh, you know, Deffy beats her up pretty good in this episode. 
Uh, her parents are going to be neutered by the 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 cannons. I, I'm curious to see if Ethel uh, this this version of Ethel Rita survives this season. Mm-hmm. Like physically, sure, but like spiritually, what what survives? Um, and things kind of look grim after this episode, honestly. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, one of the things I like about that scene uh, that's just funny to me is when they they talk about her birthday and they say you know they're they're gonna have a cake and whatnot even after her experience last episode swanee is jumping at the prospect to have some cake from that house right she's got a sweet tooth and a savory vittles tooth and they're they're long and sharp man jeez uh cool it on the desserts for a second yeah there's also stuff going on in the background with the plot where um you know it's these these characters keep getting shifted and 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 looked at like Rubik's cubes or kaleidoscopes because you know we've we'll we'll later hear the heinous crimes these women are accused of, but also like there's this line where she says, "Are you saying you're innocent of the crime?" She's like, "Innocent? I've been innocent since your uncle cornered me in the broom closet when I was ten or eleven or whatever." Yeah, and you know we we heard about uh, from a Swanee, you know what the the school teachers tried to do to her. Um, it's just showing that like none so much of um this American mythos about you know life about uh you know if you if you if you go to school and you work hard and you do this and you do that everything will work out fine like it just it just belies that like there are astonishingly few personal choices that we get to make like truly just like oh you know in a vacuum here's what I'll do mm-hmm. everything affects everything um and you know it's it's uh I thought it was it's 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 great the way that this is showing that like people kind of get trapped into the lives that they lead and they don't really have any other off ramps onto it, you know, like yeah. telling these women to just like, hey, stop committing crimes. Like, what does that mean? Like they, they decided to go off the reservation literally and metaphorically, you know, when they were 13 years old. What what are you going to tell them? Yeah. Um, this kind of transitions to canon business. We're going to hook up with Ethel Rita later in some U.S. official martial business. But right now, um, the other thing that kind of opened the episode was this. I really thought this was a fun. These these the, these scenes where they're in this jazzy swinging nightclub and everybody's having a good time. And the music's hot and the conversation is people are dancing. And then the fuzz comes and the party is fucking over. Mm-hmm. Uh as it always have, is. Uh, you can't have cops bust in a party and still keep the party no. going. It's never good unless it's the no. Fraternal Order of Police and there's, <laughs> sure. there's state-sanctioned hookers and blow there. Uh-huh. Uh, all other parties, all other parties get uh, kiboshed. Um, you know, they had a, a ripped out of the headlines uh, cop trying to choke a black man to death uh, uh, situation. Which headline are you talking about? No, I, no <laughs> right? I, I've just you like, know that's perennial. That's it, perennial, right. like. Yeah, that they, they, they that that stories those stories bloom eternal apparently, yeah, uh, and will until we decide collectively it's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, you know Leon and uh, uh, his son both get cracked in the skull and carted off to jail, and we see the Fadas across the street, uh, you know, looking at all the chaos, and Josto is very satisfied, and Gaetano is very skeptical. Um. We'd have a, a scene with Loy showing off uh, the goods, the the Mort Kellerman from the Fargo Mafia Syndicate outfit, trading guns for loyalty. Um, what do you think about Mort Kellerman's loyalty here? 
uh is he going to go to war with the eye ties as they as they say oh boy uh i hate to say it but look we're talking about the 1950s here uh i i think if lloyd cannon wasn't black and his whole crew wasn't black i'd have more faith in that um Mm -hmm. in this alliance that they're trying to fledge here but i'm not so sure that they can count on their loyalty yeah, I mean, I wanted that. That's uh, and the fact that the cannons gave him the lion's share of the guns. I also didn't understand, you know, uh, 150, 150, 200, 100 in your favor, but you give him the lion. Maybe he's got tons of guns. He's got enough guns. He's got and, and the guys to muscle. use them. Um, you know, right. you, 200 guns does you no good if you have 50 guys. Right. But if Mort Kellerman has 200 dudes and 200 guns, you see what I'm yeah. saying? Like, he might just be like, you know what? Fuck the Italians and fuck uh, the cannons, too. I'm taking over the whole the whole town. Yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I, but I just thought it's like, oof, I'm not I'm not sure. I think it's a, I think it's a good play. It's a good play. Uh, but what are the assurances too? you know? Like uh, when you call your your debt and they are like, uh, actually, you know, we're busy up in Fargo. Can you do more than just shake your fist? Like yeah. there's a lot of calculus going into criminal math, you know, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, OK, well, I'm promising. But how are they going to enforce the promise? Because if I can just welch on that, then. And if you know, and if, and if me uh, welching on my promise means that they're not going to be around to then take retribution for that. Uh, right. What does it matter? You know, and the and the my other rival left will be significantly weakened. And even if you prevail, you'll be weak enough that I can finish you off. Like it's, uh-huh. whew, so it's, it's the castle it's, risk dilemma. <laughs> it is. It is the yeah. first person that draws blood is is taking the biggest risk. Sure. Um, something Alan Supplewell pointed out in his review that I didn't uh, pick up on on my first watch or any of my watches is. Uh, when uh, uh, the the outfit from Fargo rolls up to pick up the guns, they're in this uh, truck with uh, Treehorn Trucking labeled. Did yeah. you get this reference? I, I saw that. Yeah, that's a big Lebowski reference. Yeah, the porn uh, reference to porn magnate Jackie Treehorn. Hell uh, yeah, from the Big Lebowski. So, uh, yeah, I just thought that was that was a nice little uh, Coen Brothers reference. Mm-hmm. Um, inside, and so this is interesting. Loy says the funeral parlor's ours now. We own this thing. Uh, and he's directing his gang to say, you know, to tell them that, Hey, you, we, we, you need to go over there and take, uh, and, sh- and, uh, show them that we mean business. The cops bust in and change up the whole plan. He ended up like, take, this is so serious that, uh, he decided to take matters in his own hand. His gang is all arrested, but he shows up personally to take possession. I thought that was, that was an interesting character note of his, mm-hmm. um, that like, Another person would have chosen to maybe just conclude this business another day when you're back to full strength. But uh, Cannon, what what did you did you you pick up on that too? Like just how I didn't. But is that a positive? Is that a strength or a weakness? Uh, that's a good question. It's certainly in line with what he says about I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win. Um, you know, regardless. It makes him such a target. I guess he's 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 carting around zero. But, like, I don't think Gaetano gives a fuck about shooting Zero. No. If he cared, he wouldn't have, tar- uh, you know, targeted Loy's son. It's just, it's one of those things where it's, like, really hard to tell, like, what's smart and what's not. Because it's, you know, what can you get away with, I guess. 
Oh, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, this this episode is is all about telling you that there are no rules, right? Like that that scene where Loy is sitting at the table with uh, Debril and Thurman and mm-hmm. Thurman's like talking about, well, I've never done this before. Like this is my first time getting in bed with gangsters. What are the rules? Well, there right. are no rules, man. The rules are right. whatever you can make the rules. Uh, go and, go and, and look he can't at the U.S. law. That. Yeah, go and look at the U.S. law code for rules. Reg- oh no, you just drove off the map, dude. Yeah, there's no. You're in yeah. uncharted territory, man. You, you, the only thing you have is your your wits and your brains. So figure it oh, out. Boy, and he's I hate to tell so you, unequipped Thurman. for that. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna be leaning awful hard on Debril for both of those things, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, but we get a we get a big dump about uh, Otis's backstory here, Weff's backstory, Detective Weff. Um, yeah. his role because you know this doesn't explain the OCD. The OCD is just something you're 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 more or less born with, but it 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 under it, it explains why it's wildly out of control. Because mm-hmm. uh, he was a minesweeper selected precisely because he had this kind of rigid way of thinking and this systematic way of doing things that would allow him to do a pattern and never deviate to where another soldier might get distracted by boredom or fatigue or tedium. He just was remained locked in. Um, but as Chris Rock explains, uh, something went wrong with the colonel and him lying down in the field and looking at clouds. And there's a dispute about this. We'll we'll catch back up to this in a minute. Um I thought it was a great scene, but r- importantly, it was a really excellent use of Chris Rock. I think that the the show continues to really dial in what about Chris Rock can be menacing because in this one he's channeling that kind of like um, you know every once in a while he 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 shifts into this like really cruel bully gear like on stage when he's really got a bit between his teeth and he's really worrying it or he's really laying into somebody or dealing with a heckler. Yeah, and I felt like he brought that energy to this scene and. He didn't give a care. He didn't give a fuck whether he triggers this guy and he gets shot. Or he's just not just not going to have it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a good scene, and Jack Houston is excellent in this episode. Not just in this scene, but later as well. Um, Chris Rock is is really growing on me, and this scene has a couple of barn burners for him. Or this this episode rather has a couple of barn burner scenes, like the, that scene with his family uh, and his wife and his mother in law. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really good. He's he's grown on me. In fact, I just want to roll from that right in because the next scene in the the canon line of business is his putting down of a domestic insurrection with his wife and his uh-huh. mother in law. Um, you know the chickens have come home to roost. He's made these moves. They put he's put their sons at risk. Um, continually and in an escalating manner, and she as a mother has fucking had enough. And then uh, Loy kind of puts them both back on his, their their heels. Uh, this is another, like I said, great scene where he turns this corner and uh, engages this kind of cruel, ferocious gear. Uh, what do you think? The particulars of it aren't really anything I haven't seen before. Like, mm-hmm. you know, calling out, oh, you're living high on the hog off of uh, what I provide. Like, that's been in a hundred different things before. Um, sure. It's, you know, it's it's a pretty efficient way, though, to to allow Chris Rock to stretch. Because, like, I don't know. I mean, somewhere along the way, she did choose this, right? And I don't know. It's hard to say, like, you consciously choose this life 
but you end up in this life and there isn't really a way out. Like what, what's Loy going to do even if he wanted out? Just, I, I guess he could roll up shop and just. You could absolutely go legit, but that's a process. He's and trying, hard to right? do and in the middle of a fucking gang war. Yeah, absolutely. You got to, this is Michael Corleone's problem. Man, all he wanted to yeah. do is go legit, but he could never get out of the fighting the battles he needed to do to get to get uh, to get out of that. Same thing happened to Walter yeah. White. Um, That's what I mean. It's it's been done many times before, but it's effective. Uh, and Chris Rock, yeah, it and off. and it's a permanent loss because like you can absolutely cow your woman as a man with uh you know physically intimidating. You're bigger, stronger. You know you can physically bully them. Uh, especially if you have emotional and financial leverage over, they're dependent on you for their nice right. things and the food over there. You can do that, but the cost is they're never going to look at you the same yeah. when you when you pull this shit. Uh, and that's something that uh, Loy's going to, I imagine, is going to be a story of like he saves his family and protects his family and destroys his family all at the same time. He's not going to have. To the extent that, like, you know, if these Mike Mulligan theories are true, his own son is going to turn his back on the family name and repudiate him, which yeah. is kind of already happening with his older son. So bleak shit like this is not like an amazing masculine scene here. This is a person who's burning <laughs> yeah. the relationship he has with his wife. <laughs> yeah, and his family. There are like two families here, right? There's his crime family and there's his family family. Um, and, right. and I think the show is playing with that a little bit. Like if, you know, his his if the attack on his kid isn't enough to push this into total war, well then the attack on his other family, Dr. Senator is going to be the thing that does it. I think, um, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about that, but it, it, they're, you know, contrasting or they're comparing these two quote unquote families that he has and how far he's willing to go for each of them and how he treats each of them. And I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how he deals with Leon. I think that'll be important. Yeah, uh, speaking of Leon, there are uh, the whole Cannon gang minus Loy and Dr. Senator are in this holding cell, mm-hmm. and Leon's trying to defend themselves from these accusations. You can tell he's guilty because he's pacing back and forth, wearing grooves, as they say. And, you know, he's saying, like, I did everything I could. I, I went try tried to hustle him at the back door. I, I fought against an insurmountable number of police, and the guys came back with, like, you fucked up before you even got to that situation. Yeah. You were going to be fucked up because you took him there. Like, you went to this illegal thing. He's underage. There's all this hooch. There's all these prostitutes. There's drugs. Uh, <laughs> Hilarious you know. when he says, you know, the place is full of booze and syphilis. And then they do a cutaway. I, I don't know the guy's name. The guy with the weird eye. Uh, they do a cutaway mm. to him, and he just kind of, like, nods. <laughs> like, yep, syphilis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. And then Leon realizing, like, oh, God, I'm fucked. You know, I had one, you know, you had the yeah. one job, Leon, and and you messed it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was uh, that was pretty good. And then you see this, the cops arranging a private meeting with Afadas. And Josto comes in here, and he delivers this epic speech, which yeah. he thinks is going to single-handedly end the war. Um, and I, I, there's a lot of really great stuff in here. Like, you know why America loves a crime story? Because America is a crime story. Mm-hmm. And showing the difference between people like him, where people's like, oh, he's just scrapping to get ahead. Like, I do crime to get ahead. When people see you, all they see is crime. Yeah. Like, fuck, fuck, that is a hell of a line. And 
you know, this whole stuff, like, he's not saying anything that's not true. Like, I've, you know, you're fighting, you're fighting the everything. You're fighting the entire system. I'm just, you know, paying cops to look the other way. Um, it was all designed to make these these gentlemen give up. Now, yeah. of course, to scare it's them. just going to do the opposite. It's going to, to galvanize them into action. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I... Uh, I, I thought that was a, it was a great scene. Uh, Milligan stepping up to ask whether you know Loy is going to settle or go to war, and then promising to keep his son safe because you people are all going to be dead anyway. Yeah. Um, I didn't consider this as a possibility that Mulligan that Milligan would just you know go rabbit take take Satchel and be like we're we're out of here. What what do you think Satchel thinks about that? I don't know. Has that boy said a word the entire show? <laughs> like, I not we, many. We don't have any insight into what he's feeling at any time. He just stares. And from his perspective, it must feel like his family's abandoned them. Like he only gets to oh, see yeah. his mom like what for a couple minutes on on Thanksgiving Day. Like I uh, assume that's the case, but like I said, we don't know anything about him. Yeah. Uh, and and Loy's pretty 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 gruff guy. Although he does have mm-hmm. his like it's he, he there's some kind of tender moments with him and Zero, which we've seen throughout the season. I don't know how to do the math on that. Uh, yeah. And it might be the right call if all you care about is protecting this 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 innocent child. Like I do mm-hmm. think that it's fifty fifty about who who ends up on top. Like I was trying to think of like it, it's impossible to state the situation because I don't know like what you know, reinforcement Josto can expect from the official side of the, the family. I don't know what uh, Gaetano can bring from the old world. I don't know what Mort's going to do up in Fargo. I don't really know how big Cannon's organization is. Like, and, and the fact that it's not going to be a united Fada front, front, right? It's going to be right. a divided Fada front. Um, mm-hmm. That's just the, and you got the police and the Marshall situation. I, I honestly don't know how to score this fight. Um, Everything being equal, I guess I'd go on Cannon because I think he's smarter at the top. But shit, that's a lot of variables, man. Yeah, and I think it seems like the Italians just have more guys. The Fadas are better connected. Um, although that Casey Mafia, or, or sorry, not Casey Mafia, the Fargo Mafia, um, seems like it could bring a lot of firepower. So maybe he's got all the guys he needs. They're hunt, uh, hinting with this us versus them mentality. The idea that like maybe Cannon uh, Loy's gang is not big, uh-huh. but like the neighborhoods behind it, like how like you, you how many cousins and brothers and uncles. If you say hey, it's us versus these guys, and they're muscling in, they're killing us, and they're trying to run us off, and you know you rely on us for your you know, your card games and rely on us for your Thanksgiving turkeys at Thanksgiving. And like, they start calling in favors and like, suddenly they got a whole bunch more people. I don't know. Um, It's just something they talked about in terms of like how they view the police. But I, I I think it would be pretty easy to get people viewing it that way in terms of organized crime. If you had your team and their team, um, I wonder if they're going to go in that direction. We'll see. So, uh, Next bit of business is uh, the Smutneys are preparing for Ethel Rita's birthday, and uh, Loy Cannon shows up to collect the the mortuary business. And this is um, a much less it's a much it's, it's it's a much less violent version of the scene from Pulp Fiction where J- Jules explains, you know, my name's Pitt, and you're not talking your way out of it. Like mm-hmm. these people's lives are already over, 
and they have to go through the five stages of grief about it. Uh, but from Nick's, they're already they're already dead people. They're just walking around because they can help him out right now. And watching them all come to grips with that, especially Thurman, I thought was really fucking, uh, really fucking powerful. Yeah, um, and they're doing some some thematic stuff about the wielding of power here um, between this scene and the one with uh, Deffy and Ethel Rita later where she's threatened with expulsion if she doesn't give up the the place uh, that Zamer is hiding. And and they're both like, I love the structure of this. I love how they bring together both of these uh, powerful forces uh, bearing down on Zalmer and Swanee by the end of this episode and the, the orchestration. It's just, it's really, um, it's really tight. Uh, and I, I've seen it done other places, but this is good. But they're both like using similar language. Like at this scene, Debril, when she's, you know, realizes what's up, she says, oh, Mr. Cannon, please. Um, she She's trying to, you know, beg her way out of this. The same thing that Ethelreda does when Deffy approaches her. Um, and they're both being put to a choice. Give up your sister or aunt. Um, depending on who you are, or your life is going to be ruined, right? And they both make the same choice. And I think, I'm not sure exactly what they're trying to say about these people, but they're definitely comparing the two and saying that they would rather preserve themselves than, you know, protect their sister or aunt. Or is it like it's just showing that like... um both of them might think they're kind of got a little bit of outlaw in them, or at least a little bit of that twinkle in the eye. But like when the chips are down, they're squares. Yeah, they're yeah. definitely squares. Uh huh. Um, I think that's a, another thing they're trying to say. Could absolutely but, be, uh, and they're giving up that outlaw. Yeah, and they're showing the the connection because they've also been talking about the connection that like Ethelreda shares with her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't see it, right? And I don't think each other th- them each other see it. Um. But I don't know. Like I, I, but what are they doing with that? Because yeah. I don't know that that's satisfying. That like this this independent spirited character gets relegated to a square. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. What's it's like? Uh, it's, you tell the truth to power, but uh, a lot of times, uh, power's still going to prevail. Uh, it's it's laudable to do it, but holy shit! It's, yeah, it's, and that's it does, it's not a trump card. It just works all the time. No, and that is absolutely what they're getting at. Like the power there is what matters. Like you can beg, Mm. you can try and be the outlaw, but eventually the power, whether it's, you know, Loy Cannon with his underworld power or Deffy with his legal power, uh, is going to come down and it's going to do what it wants and it's going to bend you to its will. And that is uh, an intimidating and scary thing. And, you know, they're defending bad people. Like, I don't think Zalmer and Swanee are very good people, but also mm-hmm. they're being manipulated into cooperation by the power uh, that these For people sure. are wielding. Yeah. Uh, I also thought this is another good scene for, for Chris Rock. And I, I thought this one uses a lot more of just his naked comedic energy, just put the different, because uh, this scene and the other scene where he was like uh, bullying his wife, I got a lot of the, there's this particular one of his old comic series where he's talking about how daddies don't get any respect. Like nobody's like, Hey dad, thanks for the lights being on. I don't have to squint to see because the lights are on. And Oh, I really appreciate that food was on the table. <laughs> like there's yeah. a lot of that kind of energy when he's talking about like, Oh, we're past, please. We're at the, whatever you want, boss, just don't kill me. Right. Right. <laughs> we're, we're at that phase. Like that's like really funny, but also he's going to kill these people. Mm-hmm. He's talking about painting the, the kitchen 
with the with their blood and waiting for the daughter to show up. This is Butcher from the Boys, which we talked about how effective it was a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, and 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 Chris Rock is doing it, man. So mm-hmm. uh, then Leon tries to explain himself to his boss, and that didn't work too well. It's funny that they just. I feel like there's a lot of tension being built up with this confrontation being so much made of it, and yet is it is delayed. Yeah. Um, because like some of this, like if you if 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 Loy wants to, he could put Doctor Senator's death on Leon, right? Like, hey, if you'd have played your job as babysitting my son and took it even halfway serious, you wouldn't have gotten shot up. We wouldn't be in this situation. You wouldn't have had my son pinched and I had to distract myself and have Dr. Senator run around doing all this shit, getting you boys out of... Like, I, I feel like all this anger and grief might just get poured out on poor Leon here. <laughs> you, uh, you might not be wrong. Yeah, that's uh, something I made a. They've made a lot... And I'm not sure, because there's two ways you can do it. You can lean into that, like I'm talking about. Or you could do, do like the Darth Vader at the end of Empire Strikes Back where like... Boy, you really think Admiral Piet's going to get it because he's let the Falcon get away, and then Vader's just kind of lost in thought and thought just walks off like, oh, mm. I guess you know, I did you did an okay job of getting the like I, I don't know it could go either of those two ways where uh, Loy could just like retreat into himself or look for an outlet to beat the shit out of somebody, punish somebody. Um, but we'll see. They also are immediately going to disembark to go to pick up the hotel. We find out uh, that the marshal is also inbound at the same time. So Lloyd busts in on the Zellmer and uh, uh, shot. Was it Swan- Swanee? Yeah. Yeah. And they think they're there to kill him or rape him. Lloyd's actually there to hire him and put him to work because they owe him and he wants him to work it off. And because uh, he explains he needs invisible soldiers for this war he's going to fight. And then he hustles him into a car just as the marshal gets upstairs and is there to overlook at it. Yeah, crucially, he sees that happen, which cannot be good for them. No, it's probably going to give him the wrong. Well, I mean, there's no right idea U.S. Marshal could have about the situation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not, especially a racist one. Uh, yeah, we're, we're using you see, we're using these girls as assassins to kill some other good bad dudes. Yeah. You know, well, it's it's fine. It's fine. It's really fine. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just a, a non-starter and it, uh, he's so close. The good Lord had him shake the tree. He shook mm-hmm. the tree and he came so close to getting that ripe fruit and it moves him to almost where son of a biscuit. They definitely prominently showed the license plate. They didn't do like a, a B-roll mm-hmm. cut to it, but they, it mm-hmm. was very obvious. It was very red. Yeah. 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 Plus, you know, how many black gangs are there in Kansas city? It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's going. To, it's it's not going to be a, a huge leap of police work to to figure out what's going on here. So no, I don't shake, know. Shake a couple more trees, because the the law's already up the cannon's ass. Um, now they're going to have an outside agency agitating for it too. This is a bad. This is this is just a bad deal for them for them to happen. Yeah. Um. So this this does bring us to uh, one official piece of U.S. Deputy Marshal's business. I want to go through Deffy's kind of storyline since it's dovetailed to this. Um, crucially, all that stuff that we talked about in the beginning of the episode where uh, Detective Weff is going around and kicking in doors and busting heads of the cannons for the Fadas. Uh, Marshal Deffy saw all that go down, mm-hmm. you know, looking at him with spyglasses and stuff. 
So he visits Weft the next day, expresses hurt that he wasn't invited on the raids, and then says that he had... We, we get his backstory from, from Weft's point of view. I guess we should talk there. Weft gets to retell the story from his point of view, that the reason he laid down in the fields is not because the Minesweeper gig got to him, but because his betrothed, the girl he left behind to fight the war, got raped and violently killed. And yeah. then he decided to just not give a shit. Now, he vociferously disagreed with the assessment that, that Loy made that he said he cleared the field and he didn't, and the colonel then got blown up taking a leak. But this story seems like he was building up to just admitting to that. What do you think? Do you think there's any daylight between these two stories? That there might be something something else to the story? I hadn't really considered it. Um I feel like the one that I trust the most is his firsthand re- retelling of the thing um, as opposed yeah. to because we don't even know who Loy heard this story from. Right. Like, sure. That was my first question when he started going into his backstory. I'm like, who told him this? Who is he hanging out with that knows enough about that guy? Um, probably Dr. Senator heard it somewhere. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I'm pretty inclined to just take him at his word here. I just still think the so like so do you think the colonel rolls up and asked him did you clear this field and cuz they they stop he just we we stop with him laying in the field looking up the sky saying that the clouds are beautiful um I don't think he cleared that field what's what's not clear to me is like why did the colonel go ahead and try to cross it did he was he honest with the colonel and the colonel said who too bad uh did some other guy lie on their behalf or what what yeah, I, my, I don't know. My feeling is he's just out of it at that point, right? He hears about his wife. He has been mm. doing this extremely stressful mind clearing job, right? It's not exactly a, a walk in the park. Sure. Um, he's already got some like OCD kind of tendencies, um, some yeah. you know mental issues that he's dealing with, and then that on top is just enough to break him. Where he just lays down in the field, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't know what he's saying to him. Just. Yeah. Oh, there's a person over there. Yes, sir. Like, yeah. Hmm. I'm. I, so I am curious it. to see if there is a little bit more to the story because I, be. I. I think it's 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 interesting because this is the way the show's way of saying is like you know you, this is not necessarily how people OCD behave. Like you know nowadays you can, through medicine and therapy and you know avoiding triggers and what you can you can live a a, a rich full life but like in 1950 with this much fucking stress and these many triggers and yeah. this much guilt and this just wildly untreated and and exacerbated OCD uh-huh. he is just this 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 bundle of neuroses um but yeah i my 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 question here is is Deffy taking a a, a liking to Otis um, or starting to feel sorry for him, or is he just working a suspect in an efficient way? I feel like it's more of the latter. I, I I don't I don't get a read on him like he really has any friends. I I get a read on him like he's he is his job. Um, I feel like the 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 guy's trad story is trad like you know like from Deffy's perspective. Hey, this guy's trying to serve his country. And he gets done dirty in the worst possible way. He's got these he's he's got all these kind of neuroses and twitches and like now I understand it. Like I could see him trying to redeem him, you know, as his role of elder of the seventy seventh scroll or whatever the fuck it is. Uh I could see him like trying to redeem this guy. Or or recruit him even, frankly. Yeah. Uh, which is the same thing, I guess, to an evangelical 
sect. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, yeah, this is also the most efficient way to work a suspect. You gain their trust, you build them up, you make them think you're friends, you form an emotional connection, and you use that uh, mutual respect to 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 uh, uh, get them to tell you the things you need. So yeah, I don't know. And I mean, I don't know. Jack Houston in the scene is pretty amazing. Um, maybe maybe outshined by Timothy Oliphant with just a single look. I. Because there's that that thing when he's just like sort of innocently innocently asking like oh well, if you don't mind what 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 did her in you know what what she die of and then he tells this horrible story and they cut over to Timothy Oliphant who was not expecting that answer and mm-hmm. he just mm-hmm. raises his eyebrows and it cracked me up it's it's the it's that dark humor that Fargo does so well uh, yeah I, I love that moment and then. There are a couple of other moments with Timothy Oliphant where he's just like, man, he's so good. He's so good at what he does. And I don't know that I've ever seen him play a character this bad, which is uh-huh. nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like just nakedly and evil. I think he played the villain in like a Die Hard and there's a couple others where he's played antiheroes. But yeah, yep. this guy is. I, I, so I always confuse him and Josh Duhamel, who is is in Transformers. He's not in Die Hard, right? I, I can't remember which one is in which. So. No, I don't think so. He is in Transformers. I know who you're talking about. Uh-huh. Do you think there's going to be anything about this private uh, ceramic collection he's got? These uh, Alpine Shepherds boys that he's got in strict formation? I don't know. The Hummels? Uh, is that going to be one of those represents each minesweeper that got blown up in World War II that he knew? Yeah, could be. Uh, I took it just as like a trinket that his uh, fiance collected. but And he's got all rigid order yeah yeah Yeah, it's a memory of her so anyway the marshal's gonna go shake the tree for the good lord just go shake the suspect tree and he continues to do so uh he meets up with ethelita towards the end of the episode where she gets called into the principal's office and everyone's haranguing her about being this this damn colored girl who's brought the wrath of the u.s marshals like there's what 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 have you been up to what kind of terrible stuff have you been doing um and U.S. Marshal takes the tack, Deffy uh, takes the tack of, um, you think your aunt is one thing, but here is, she's the type of person who will kill a man and her pre- his pregnant wife to steal 10 bucks from him, not even 10 bucks. And her partner will kill a respected banker and Little League coach um, in this inept prosecution of crime. I think this is effective, except for, in my mind, I'm screaming, well, he could just be making this shit up. You know, like, sure. Like, I'm not saying yeah. that like Zalmer and and uh, Swanee are good people, like you said, but like, you know, are they are they this bad and wanton criminal? I mean, maybe they are, but like, you know, cops can lie to you, man. Uh, I, I think it would it would benefit the show. It it would it would be important to let the audience know that that's what's happening if he is lying. Um, hmm. I think you need to give us some indication that he's just applying pressure. To, to her not not telling the truth because as of now I'm taking it at face value he's in a position to know um, have right. particular history on them so yeah right yeah um, but then he he goes I think he's he's getting some work done and then uh, you know he goes a little bit too far this marks about her being civilized and she schools him on where civilization actually came from and our mutual shared uh, branches of the family tree and so I think it's it's amazing because they they set this up as a literal carrot and stick situation. Mm-hmm. He offers her the literal carrots from his pocket, and now 
once his his silver tongue doesn't get what he wants. Um, and what's interesting is like this factual information, like she is literally ridiculous to this man. Mm-hmm. Like she's talking stuff that's blasphemy. He doesn't probably care that much about science and doesn't think all that much about evolution as a Christian in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And here's this person from an inferior race telling him that they're the same and with a smirk on their face, acting like she's got some kind of leverage. And he just destroys it and is like, okay, here's the deal. You either tell me what I want now or you're getting expelled. Yeah. I'm going to ruin one I'm of your ru- lives. You pick. Jesus Christ. What a, what a, what, what a, what a fucking dilemma. And Ethelreda yeah. folds like a cheap suit because what else? Yeah, what is she gonna do? Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a tough decision. Do you defend the outlaw or do you throw away your your future prospects? Right, that she's been working so yeah. hard on. And I feel like I feel like that's a lesson all bright kids have to learn. That like, yeah, we all we all say it's good to speak truth to power, and all, but also you got to pick your battles because power wins ninety percent of the time. So you got to yeah. make sure it's worth dying or ruining your life for when, cause you know, you just lip off to everybody. Uh, you become, you become, you become Gaetano, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I'm actually surprised he, that they haven't done the Deffy routine. I thought that was going to be an ongoing bit of like, you know, she was going to try to tell him something that he wasn't trying to hear and he's going to be yeah. part, but they've kind of abandoned that. Haven't they? Yeah. It was in that one episode and I haven't seen it since. Yeah, I thought he had, with his uh, showdown between Gaetano and uh, Cal- uh, Calamita, I thought it, there would that would that would come back around. Maybe they're saving it, but they also yeah. might have just abandoned it as like, well, that's annoying. Like, <laughs> oh, and they didn't abandon Gaetano's uh, Jack Black routine. I, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, or like maybe uh, you know Timothy Elephant comes across more when he's just verbally brawling with people. Like he's 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 a smart guy. He's articulate. Let him let him do that. Like mm-hmm. let him run. Yeah. I don't know, but I thought it was weird that they didn't do it. Sure. Well, that'll round us into the Fada business, which has the big bombs of the evening. Yeah. Uh, up front, a great little scene, as you've already said, where uh, Rabbi Mulligan Milligan. <laughs> I'm trying to give him a Mulligan. I'm gonna take <laughs> a, a Mulligan, Mulligan on, on that, that name. Yeah. Yeah. Come back for it, Milligan. Uh, Rabbi Milligan and Josto are talking about the art of war essentially, and mathematics and the English language. You just saw a brief skirmish with me uh, uh, <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> it's it's a great scene. It's and it, it's yeah. man. It just contrasts how smart um, Rabbi Milligan is with how dumb Josto is. Uh, what's yeah. Josto missing? Because the sticking the police after the cannon fa- uh, gang was a really good play. If you just mm-hmm. want to judge it b- by by Machiavellian standards, he is kind of smart what is what's he missing what's he lacking like is it just he's he's seen his old man do shit like this and he's copying and there's no like i i'm I'm not sure exactly what he's 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 got wrong inside him that wouldn't make him a boss but it's something yeah i mean maybe he just hasn't seen the monster right like uh you know calamita says later like i'm worse than the baby in the box right i'm i'm a monster um gatano's also a monster and Rabbi has seen the monsters, right? They were in his own family at one time. Um, mm. He knows who those people are, and he recognizes Gaetano for what he is, whereas maybe Josto doesn't. He's too concerned with other things. Um, he's too concerned with, uh, to, you know, what's going on with the the mayor, um, who we haven't seen in three episodes or whatever. 
Um, yeah. He's just not taking this seriously enough, whereas Rabbi knows exactly how this goes. Yeah, he's he's already got his mind on his next three moves, and he's not like, you got to fight a war right here. I thought that line yeah. about, you know, he's assuming, well, if I if I put this war to bed, then, you know, Gaetano will go back home because what does he got here? And he's like, what does he got at home? Italy is bombed out. There's nothing. This is a boom town. Mm-hmm. Where would you want to be? Um, and like, you know, this, the making this math problem, I thought that was a nice little running thread through the conversation where, you know, here's the deal. You're, you know, you, you, this guy's going to bring in 10 or 20 guys from the old country. It's going to be seen as a gift. It's actually going to be a Trojan horse and you got a math problem, either divide them or they're going to multiply. Yeah. What a fucking, what a fucking speech. It's so well-written. So well-written. This dialogue just pops. Uh, it, it's, it's remarkable to me that some of the best scenes in Fargo can be these, these quiet, like just having a conversation scenes. Um, and it kind of puts it head and shoulders above so many shows on television. Because uh, it's not just that they're doing this math uh, analogy, right? Oh, you got to divide or they multiply. Right, it, right. That's good. But then they're also mixing in like this math versus, versus English thing and this immigrant thing. It's like, you know, oh, he, he says, oh, plenty of people say I'm bad at English. And then Rabbi comes back with, well, they're not proud of it, right? Like, like he just said, hey, I've never been good at math. And he sort of says it like he's, yeah, mm. I've never been good at math. Uh, so there's like this, this immigrant thing mixed up in the English. And then when he asked him if he understands what he said with this coded math language about dividing and multiplying, he asks mm. him if he understands in Italian, right? Capiche? Like Capiche, yeah. th- there's an Italian English thing going too. It's, it's just really tightly written. I, I love this scene. I love a lot of times when we talk about set pieces in television and movies, we talk in terms of big, elaborate action sequences. I love that in Fargo, they have conversational set pieces. Yes, they do. That are every bit as elaborately staged and set up as like the Battle of the Bastards, you know, uh, yeah. something like that in in a Game of Thrones. And it's all just and the, the bat is long, mm-hmm. uh, but it's all just staged over a coffee table. <laughs> yeah. with extreme close-ups uh it is it's it's really satisfying to watch and this guy playing rabbi is fantastic uh he is the way he's delivering these speeches the 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 control he's showing in these scenes is really good um and then he you know he goes to satchel and tells him to be ready because when the shooting starts we're going to vanish yeah and i was trying to read what satchel's expression was and He's unreadable. Like, I think he's doing what his dad says about giving him, don't give him anything, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this develops. Because, like I said, I think it's the right play if you're just worried about Satchel's physical safety. But, um, you know, obviously, it, Lloyd's is, not going to see it that way. Is there Maybe any Satchel chance won't? that Satchel, d- Satchel pulls a rabbi and turns traitor on the Italians getting rabbi killed as well, like intentionally. Possibly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that that would just be cold. Just so cold. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think there is there's so many possibilities with how they've set this up and the parallels to the historical, mm-hmm. the fake historical stuff, the real historical stuff. It's yeah, who knows where it could go. Um we see Gaetano arriving at a bar. He's going to have a personal meeting with uh, Calamita away from prying eyes. And he's doing this elaborate uh, um, 
gun dance <laughs> which is funny because i also within the 24 hours of seeing this episode i went back to watch leon the professional because it's a it's a movie we're we're doing a podcast for and it's it's such a homage to gary oldman's character which is also huh. like and 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 kind of um uh you know boondock saints a few years later played with this role okay. with um what's the i can't remember this guy's uh, name it's... lighthouse man farter farter <laughs> mcgee Will of Defoe, big, yeah. old gnarly Waller's dick Defoe. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that's that's so yeah. Willem Defoe, um, his character in in the the, the investigator in um, uh, the Boondock Saints had this kind of like same over the top. And here's the thing, I just have a real hard time dealing with this type of character. I believe they exist. Like if you have this outlaw institution, and every once in a while they have a fail son. They have like a Joffrey or they have a Gaetano or they have whatever the hell uh, Bobby Cannavale was playing in season three of, of uh, Boardwalk Empire. Just these loose cannons. Mm-hmm. What can you do about them? They're the boss's son or whatever. Um, they just annoy the piss out of me because it's it's like, you, you know, you think of the ta- the mafia as like this institution that's that's like the serious thing, right? And like every once in a while, you realize that it's it's actually it is literally La Familia. It's just a family, yeah. And it brings them down to earth, and like a it it defangs them in some way. It's like, well, this is their weakness, you know. They can't they can't take care of any kind of like a you know internal threat. Uh, yeah. And but but it's just so frustrating because you know you know as soon as this character shows up, you know how it's going to end. They're mm-hmm. not going to learn anything. They're not going to have a character arc. They're just there to persecute the smart people in the show mm-hmm. and handicap them. And it's intensely frustrating to watch. And when it's this cartoonishly played, <laughs> where like you can't even take him seriously, like he's not even that scary. Like has he been pulling this shit since he's six years old? Like. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I don't know. So I, I watched this first time through and I'm like getting, you know, kind of wrapped up in this dance, this gun dance he's doing with the mm-hmm. operatic music playing in the back. And then he slips on this ice and I kind of chuckle. And, the, you know, the other the kids laughing hysterically. The second time I watched this, I was that kid laughing hysterically. And it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely funnier the second time. This is high comedy to me that they're going to go. They're going to spend a minute and a half building this the slip and fall scene it's just like the fart scene in the first episode this season of fargo yes they're willing to go as far as as they can possibly go uh with with these jokes and i'm cool with that i thought that was hilarious but i'm with you that gaetano is kind of a a ridiculous character and i don't know if i'm supposed to be scared of him or laughing at him and this scene doesn't help me with that, although I will say like he becomes a little bit more scary in in his loose cannon way when he actually is off killing people as opposed to whatever he's been doing for the rest of the season. Um, uh-huh. This it scene maybe should have happened Lieber. earlier. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, thing is, it's still like, is it scary? Because of, like he's just, uh, he's scary the way a, a, a pit bull, a rabid pit bull that's like off its rocker is scary. Like not yeah, like. Yeah. Just, he's not Dr. Senator a, scary. Like, no. hey, I got a solution for this. Put it down. Mm-hmm. You know, just put it, just put it down. It's on a chain. It's over here right now. Put it down. Well, that's um, that's I the third a... person who's been put to a, a choice about their own fate or their family's fate, right? In this episode, Josto. He Josto, Rabbi has told yeah. him straight up, here's You're what you right. need to do. You need to divide before mm-hmm. they multiply. Uh Josto's mm-hmm. not willing to do that yet. We'll see how far 
he has to take it before he is. But the other two were, right? Ethelreda and Debril both turned over their sister. He's going to have to make that choice eventually. Otherwise, it, it seems already too late, actually, with the death of Dr. Senator. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that... Um, but then you got this scene where, like, I think this is kind of a nice set piece if I respected Gaetano's intellectual ability at all. Yeah. But, like, Calamita's is trying to, like, you know, lay this case of, hey, we got to take a real move here. We got to do this. We got to do that. And then Gaetano just fixates on this coffee, gives us del- this... I, like I said, it's 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 got the makings of a good speech where it's like, oh, you're Americans with your lady Jesus and everybody wanting to be president. And, the, you know, our Jesus had to tear himself off the cross to kill all Jerusalem. Bang, bang. But it's just like, yeah. what the hell, man? This guy, if he if he outfights the Jostos and the cannons, and he well might is going to be bagged by the law. <laughs> in like two weeks after because of his body count and he's yeah. like he doesn't even have Chris and Snoop someone smart working for him he's just going to be destroyed he's going to be rolled up by fucking uh, an outfit out of Fargo and all he can do is destroy Dr. Senator's summation that he's just a little boy making messes the only thing he got wrong is he's not going to be the one that has to clean it up because yeah. his brains get blown out in this episode mm-hmm. but like I said I, I don't know and then, then Calmita is like thinking like you know, what is he thinking in this scene and the scene after he kills Dr. Senator? Like, he's got this inscrutable look on his face, but it's like, you hitched your wagon to this guy. Like, when the crazy guy went that came to town, you're like, hey, you know what? I want crazy. And I, there is, there is a lesson to be learned there, but. I feel like this is Calamita's move. And we don't, we don't have enough, like, like he's making a move here. I, we don't have enough information about Calamita's motivations uh i think they they should have mm-hmm. they they need to do more or they should have already done more um but every scene you see him in he's talking to gaetano advising him what to do right he's kind of the rabbi uh mm-hmm. what rabbi is to josto um only yeah, to Ga- yeah, gaetano yeah. but it seems more like he's trying to call the shots he, you know he sits down with dr senator um he's the one saying hey we need to you know make these moves um I, I don't know who's in charge here necessarily. Mm. Or, or uh, well, I know who thinks they're in charge. Gatano thinks he's in charge. I'm not sure what Kalamita thinks about the power structure. If he thought he was going to be in charge, then I think this episode should have disabused him because he is now in deep with this crazy person, uh, which translates yeah. this transition to yet another conversational set piece in Spud's Diner. Uh, doctor, doctor Senator comes in, sees what's waiting for him. He's got this, this skinny Italian hitman and the, the, the greedy fat Bavarian boy from Charlie in the chocolate factory mm-hmm. sitting in the corner. What man? What? Okay. What the fuck are they trying to do with Gaetano? Now he's in the corner giggling to himself, putting like, just, just putting all the chocolate syrup into his son. Is this menacing? It's supposed to be. I don't know that it works. Oh, yeah. like I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're telling a story of like how gangsters can fail, like in very many different ways. Because I think Cannon, I think Lloyd's failing a little bit. I think Itano's failing a lot. I think Josto's failing a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, is there's these three different ways you can run a criminal organization into the ground? I don't. But like, I what it's not is creepy. Like Calamita is a little mm-hmm. bit creepy. With his like, you know, no one's more dangerous than than the than the orphan in the box. Except for me, I'm I'm worse than the baby in the box. Yeah, right. I 
that 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 kind of that kind of sort of worked. I did have questions like, how does he know this story? Yeah, I mean, there's also some comedy in this scene, too. It's not just uh-huh. uh, Gaetano sitting over on the, the sidelines, giving the stink eye and pouring his nuts. Mm-hmm. It's also the way that they're talking here, right? Like, it, that that line about, like, oh, you said you were done talking, and yet you kept talking, That that's supposed to make Calamita look kind of ridiculous. And him talking about, like, oh, I'm good, you know, we're we're done talking, than that, and then he pulls out the knife, and he's still not doing anything, right? He's right. brandishing all these threats, and Doctor Senator is calling him on that. But yeah. there's like a patheticness to the the attempted wielding of power here, uh, yeah. That's supposed to make Calamita look a little silly, and I, I think it does. And he's like, yeah. uh, "This, this is the, but this is like speaking truth to power. Like he's right on with. He's got this Machiavelli quote about he who wishes to o- obey must know how to command." You can't yeah. just show up and say, I've got the power. You got to listen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Ask the that just works on, that on the most. On, <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that just works on the most insecure and weak minded. Yeah. Like if you want like strong people, the kind of people that will be the backbone of your organization, you have to feel you have to feel that. Yeah. Wielding command and power effectively is a uh, fucking art. Mm-hmm. And some people do it well. Some people don't. Um, and like and you he's know, trying. The, right. He's sitting in doctor's seat. Um he he's trying to turn trying the to tables turn the t- here, literally on him. Uh, but but then the coffee is also a power move, right? Like when he doesn't order the coffee when he walks in, he doesn't sit down until he's got an edge of an upper hand, and then he sits down. Then he orders his coffee, and then he defiles the coffee right in front of Calamita, right by putting this mound of sugar in it. Something mm-hmm. that Gaetano just made explicit that Italians would never do, right? Yeah. Uh, th- there's all these like intricate power dynamics at play here and and like you said it is a beautifully orchestrated scene it is a set piece uh the likes of the battle of the bastards just with dialogue and looks oh here comes the here come when all appears lost here comes the coffee reinforcement (laughs) right and there's the menacing sip yeah yeah they're not gonna come back from that yeah it's uh it's uh it's 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 amazing but the thing like i said what so what I think is interesting, because all this is so well acted, like I said, that that yeah. uh, doc, doctor senator taking that sip of coffee is every bit as satisfying. We talked about it. it's a very similar scene in The Boys, late in season two of The Boys, where Butcher's taking that satisfying, menacing sip of tea. Uh-huh. Um, and he says, that, you know, you're making a mess that one day I'm going to have to clean up. You guys are boys, you're immature, you play at things you don't understand. He's right, but he did get something wrong. Which is the Calamitas, you know, went out there and, and started the war. Um, my question yeah. to you is like, is this something that Dr. Senator calculated? Because here's my argument Dr. Senator knew that deep down Loy is having trouble committing because of the collateral. Like he's got a son's life in the balance. Like everything is being. I feel like that that Dr. Senator, not that he wanted to die, but he's like, I'm going to make this move that's either going to definitively put these guys on their back or it's going to force the war so that Loy can no longer has a choice. I'm going to take this impossible choice that a father can never make. I love this kid. I'm going to take it out of his hands by kind of making myself a sacrificial lamb because me dead in the streets, there's no way. And if Lloyd doesn't act right now at this yeah. precipice, our family's going to get ran off the map. I felt like it was a little bit of a a sacrificial move. So I, I could see reading it that way, definitely. Um, 
especially because I, I believe, like you said, that this is going to kick off the war officially. I, I don't think there's to. any way for Lloyd to ignore this. Um, if well, he does, then the then the the fat has just owned them. They're just right. a they're just yeah. a they're they're just a chi- child organization at this point. There's no yeah, way you it, can't it, let this because, aggression. like I said, this is his other family, right? It, it's just it's a step too far. Um, so it could definitely be true. Uh, I, the way I read it, I will say is I think that Doctor Senator miscalculated here. I, I think he called their bluff, thinking that there was more of a rigid power structure over there and that he you know Gaetano and Calamita didn't actually have the authorization to go do this and because they didn't nothing would come of it he'd call the bluff and that would be that for the moment this is the shit you're pulling when the consigliere is out of town like once he right. comes back once the adults are back in a room you guys are going to get called okay I can see that too yeah or, or he's because he's taking the temperature at the beginning of this episode he is not you know, he's standing there trying to get a read on how serious this is and where this is coming from. And I think by the mm-hmm. end of it, he has that read. It's just, it's wrong, right? He he mm-hmm. read the room wrong. Um, but either way, this is the thing that kicks off the war. Yeah. And Whether boy, the, the Fargo theme coming in like like the hammer as the overhead shot of Do- uh, Doc's body is there and it dissolves from day to night. You see the body still laying in the streets. Yeah. Another, you know, commentary on... I'm not sure if that's supposed to be in the morning or in the evening. Like, if he's been there literally in the, all... Uh, the, the fact that the cops are just not getting there, I feel like implies that this was, like, late afternoon rather than morning. Oh, good point. Um, I, I For some reason, I thought it was early morning before the shop opened, but you're I did, right. It I can't be. Did, I, always, I always thought, the, but it could, because we've we've seen instances where they've left black bodies out, uh, you know, uh, yeah. just out of disrespect. I, like I said, the cops just showing up when they get there. I mean, like I said, that, that's a fucking, that's a hell of a flex, but it's also Kansas City, 1950s. Um, either way, Loy shows up late at night, and he is just, the grief he's feeling and like there's this look in his face like this this resignation of like why didn't these people believe me mm-hmm. like i'm going to have i don't i didn't want to murder everyone but now i have to murder everyone and it <laughs> yeah. might get like he's like i i feel like it, the, all that's processing like not only am i losing a father figure here uh but I'm also I now have to commit to an action that I thought we could talk our way out of. I thought we could do this. Like, is this and like maybe he's even thinking like stuff his wife was saying. Like, was the fucking cattle yard, was the stockyard worth it? Like what his son yeah. said, more more power, more safety. You can't have both mores. You know, like these things. Like, I it's 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 like I said, I Chris Rock. You know, is playing really really uh, bereft and haunted here, and I thought it worked really well. I gotta imagine um, his his family has to go into lockdown now, right? Like, uh, yeah, it's gonna be think? extremely dangerous for both sides on the streets at the moment. Um, so yeah, his wife, his his kids are probably both all gonna have to go into lockdown. Yeah, no, it's gonna be like uh, in 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 the scene from uh, Godfather's when they go to the mattresses, and now like the yeah. Godfather's, it just felt like a home, you know, rich guy's mansion. Now it's like a fortress. There's yeah, chains, six guys out front. dudes with shotguns. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, we're now officially to the mattresses for sure. Uh, and if, if people haven't, uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see the different, uh, you know, soldier versus soldier, you know, uh, Loy's got this, uh, invisible commando unit that he's recruited. Are they going to stay loyal? Because 
they're outlaws, but now they got a boss. Uh-huh. How's that going to work? Uh, so many shifting alliances. And like I said, this, this, a lot of these characters feel very kaleidoscope that, you know, you find stuff out about them that um, changes how you view about them. And then that changes the, how they view the world. And it's just really interesting stuff. And, you know, uh, Nurse Mayflower, I thought it was really interesting to take her just off the board this episode. Um, yeah. Don't know where this is going to intersect. Yeah. yeah. I wonder when she's going to the surface back. We'll have to see. Hey, it's time for another season of Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? The premise is simple. A Gen Xer and a millennial watch old 80s action TV to see what still works and what doesn't. In previous seasons, we've done podcasts for Knight Rider, Airwolf, MacGyver, A-Team, and more. However, this year we're doing a very special season of Feeney. We're going back and reviewing the very special episodes of 80s and 90s sitcoms. Come cringe along with us as Hollywood tries to warn our families of the dangers of underage smoking, drug abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, and much more. We start out with the episode of Boy Meets World where a high school kid gets sucked into a cult. Worlds collide as the Mr. Feeney finally makes an appearance on Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? Join me and my buddy Jay each week for episodes full of nostalgia and secondhand embarrassment. And don't worry, a very special isn't your speed. We've also got some all-time classic Knight Rider episodes to close the season with. Find Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? each Wednesday on Bald Move Pulp starting April 3rd. We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire and Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into Season 2. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, let's uh, move on to feedback. If you'd like to send in feedback for consideration on the podcast, it's easy to do so. Fargo at baldmove.com is the address you want. And uh, if we have time, we'll uh, we'll read it. Christopher says, love your show, and I think season uh, two of Fargo is one of the most underrated TV seasons of all time. I mean, yeah, it's like I, people, I guess, hate on season three of Fargo, which I really liked. I it, Everyone's got their, their favorites, and... I certainly think season two is excellent. I got my problems with the UFO stuff, but uh, it's the Gerhardt's one, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so he 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 links us his YouTube video and says, "I think that the ghost character from episode four looks a lot like the Undertaker character from season two of Fargo." So if you don't recall, the Undertaker was um, this mafia enforcer that was sent to kind of uh, put a quash to Mike Milligan's uh, business with the, uh, with the, with the Gerhards and Mike Milligan and uh, his, his brothers, I forget what the name of those guys are. Uh, they, they sliced and diced him and his associates up real good. Just killed him. Uh, 
this does the ghost, the noseless ghost does bear a striking resemblance to this guy's character. We're going to talk about it here, man. I just want to let hmm. people know if you didn't bother to watch the the video. Uh, that's what he's talking about. Uh, the fact that Mike Milligan, a likely descendant of the Cannon family, kills this character who's clearly racist in season two. He calls uh, Mike Milligan an eggplant at one point. Uh, in a pivotal moment right before ascending to acceptance in the Kansas City Mafia, following his success against the Gerhardt family, I think is symbolic. The Kansas City mob in season two represents corporate business in America, and Milligan, unlike his ancestor Lloyd, was finally able to break into this social class and kills the ghost following his family right before. This could be a metaphor that while corporate big business is not perfect, it uh, offered African Americans in this country more social mobility than unregulated small businesses. Watching the YouTube clip above with this theory in mind, I think explains the emphasis around the lead up to that killing and the odd fact that this Undertaker character came and went in season two with few other characters recognizing. Uh, I also think a central theme of this show has always been there for that there are unexplainable, unfair events in life that spawn chaos, such as the deer jumping in front of uh, Malvo's car in season one, bringing his chaos to uh, Bemidji. And UFO in season two, a ghost potentially playing a pivotal role in the season's uh, events seems in line with that theme. Yeah, I agree. I don't I don't know what to make of like it's entirely possible. This guy's literally the same actor like they look a lot alike. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think and, and maybe there's a symbolic connection the way the, on, on the way you're laying out here. But I don't think there's a literal connection because. This guy's ghost is in 1950. You know, Fargo season two takes place in the late 70s. What the shit? Like, <laughs> what kind of metaphysical ca- uh, quantum mechanics goes into manifesting him as an assassin? You know, <laughs> you're 30, telling me ghosts can't time travel. He, he dies yeah, and, 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 like and reincorporate. Comes get back a to new the nose. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 not reincorporate. He dies as uh, in the seventies or whatever, and then he goes back to the fifties. Like ghosts oh, can time travel. The totally. ghost time travel. Sure, yeah, I can't ghost saw, time travel. I've seen Lovecraft Country. I know you'd speak uh, the Book of Adam. You know you can make right. things happen. Why not? Why yeah. not? Sure, I'm a bully. I'm now a subscriber <laughs> to this theory. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to Mark Long, who says Satchel's name is almost certainly linked to Satchel Page, the most famous player in Negro League history. His most famous stint in the league was spent with the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, story starting to check out. When he finally got the chance to play in the major leagues, he debuted at age 42 with the Cleveland Indians and went 6-1 and that year. He was inducted in the ba- uh, Baseball Hall of Fame in 1971. For black baseball fans, especially in Kansas City, he would be the equivalent of Babe Ruth. His most famous saying was, don't look back, something might something might be gaining on you. Interesting. Okay. No, I, it makes sense. Uh, we talked a little bit about like, oh, what's the Monarchs thing? Why is he such a fan of the Monarchs? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, this is really checking out. So like that sells it as a nickname. Like his father would just be calling like, you know, you remind me of Satchel or whatever. Yeah. Just, or the way like you might like an Indianapolis Colts fan might name their son Peyton uh, a couple years back. Like, is it that or, or middle is name nickname? Middle name. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate that background information. It makes a lot of sense. Um, as the, the caller pointed out, or the caller, the emailer pointed out last week, they've been listening to Monarch, uh, Kansas City Monarch games during the season. So this this is all yeah. starting to feel 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 real good. Uh, Tommy from North Carolina. Deffy is Yosemite Sam after being possessed by Bugs Bunny and taking that left turn to Albuquerque. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Sure. Sure. 
see how rootin' tootin' things get by the end of the season. Eric said, probably a lock needed for that closet door in Mayflowers, eh? But I also think she might have wanted Ethelreda to snoop in there. Oretta is calculating and seems to do everything with intent. Had to know that telling Ethelreda not to look in there would make her more likely to do exactly that. What so do you think of that, Jim? Banging her head against the wall, just like waiting for Ethelreda to make her move? Is that like, is that the read <laughs> or, here? Yeah, so I, I don't want to disturb the people listening at home, but like I've listened to enough true crime and, and, and read that like if you just want to drive six hours away from your hometown and just murder someone at random and take them in the woods and drop them off and then never tell another soul, odds are you're going to get away with it. <laughs> now, the burning question in your mind is why the fuck would you do that? And the answer is usually your pants on head's crazy. Because, yeah, like, why would you just murder someone for no advantage? That's where the relationship, the personal thing, that's always, you know, if you got a reason to kill someone, it's it's a lot easier to find that out. Sure. Uh, But what gets a lot of these successful serial killers is they need someone to acknowledge how smart they are. And they start playing games with the press. They start playing games with the police. and, and, And then they get caught. I think Eric here is suggesting that uh, old Mayflower might have a little bit of this in her, that she is not satisfied with just doing her job, ushering these suffering souls to heaven. She needs, she wants credit for it. Deep down, she wants to be discovered. Is that possible, you think? Yeah, I suppose it's possible. Um, I, (laughs) I mean, she hit the jackpot here, uh, as far as evidence, I guess I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's definitely like circumstantial, I suppose. I, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's circumstantial, but uh, like, it doesn't say necessarily that she killed these people. She just has, you know, the trinkets and stuff and she has chemicals, but she's a nurse. Would she have chemicals? I don't know. There's, it certainly looks bad. Uh, and, and it would get Ethelreda thinking, but I don't, I don't know. Is her play here to like, Get Ethelreda to tell the doctor these things and then try and prove her wrong and and torment her with like her reputation being flushed. I I don't know what the end game in in this is. Like maybe it's just she's crazy, you know, and she wants that acknowledgement, but Yeah. Or there's also um well, I took my shot at the pie, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. I still want revenge, so like is she looking for a reason to justify killing her? Maybe like, well, I, I, I don't know, but there, it is a little sus that she's got this deep, dark secret. She invites someone into her home. She draws their attention to it. And then, yeah, doesn't, doesn't have a lock on it. Um, yeah, yeah, she didn't I, really I invite know. her into her home though. I mean, Ethel Rita, yeah. I think at one point literally wedges her foot in the door and says, there, no, I a little... want to work for you. But she's flying with but she's flying at this with this at the seat of her pants and she's even talking about how disorganized she is. I they're saying something. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly what it is. Um yeah. but uh moving on to Nick that says, Maybe I missed it, but after an episode where Miller's Crossing and Gaetano's Doppelgangers is mentioned, I have to throw in John Polito into that category, yeah? I just watched Miller's Crossing. Thanks for recommendation. Uh John Polito is um one of these muses for the Cohen brothers, um, like apparently uh, um, George Clooney is. Uh, he's been in five of their 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 uh, movies. Um, he was a private dick in Fargo, or not Fargo, the in Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. Okay, yeah. He does. He does seem like he might be Gaetano's dad. 
or uncle. <laughs> He's got that same kind of roundness mm-hmm. and and well of energy and you know kind of like high very very high motor for such a such a such a big person. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I well well spotted I guess. Uh and yeah, enjoy and I'm glad you enjoyed Miller's Crossing. Malcolm E, do you guys think that the names are an indication of who will win this year? Cannon Fada? Are they both cannon fodder for a third entity? Listener since Blue Yonder, by the way. Wow. That's incredible. I can't believe we've retained a person through all that we've been. That's amazing. So thank yeah. you. Um I, I am I the biggest idiot in the world? I just I had didn't make the cannon fodder connection really? until Malcolm ema- emailed in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They made it a couple episodes ago. I don't think we talked about it though. Uh yeah, I mean look, they're both crime organizations, right? The the cops could be the third party here that win the day. Mm-hmm. Um Deffy could. You could also see them just destroying each other and then uh having like a rabbi and satchel get away, like we think is gonna happen with uh some kind of Mike Milligan transformation. There's a lot of ways this could go, but I don't see it going well for either side of this. Mort Kellerman could be that third party mowing him down. Absolutely. With the 200 guns he's just gotten. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I, I I think that, yeah, that is significant. The fact that Mike or the Rabbi Milligan just said that uh, they're all going to die. You know, I think there's going to be a similar body, ta- body count over on the Italian side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cannon Fodder does seem like it's a pretty apt name for these people. Yeah. Um. Kaylee says, long-term listener to your, or long-time listener to your podcast, and is definitely one of my favorites. Well, thank you, Kaylee. Short and sweet, I listened to another podcast, Fargo Talks Fargo, I think. <gasps> my God, podcast infidelity, Jim. Let's, <laughs> should we countenance it? I suppose. Yeah, we're going to have to put you to a choice. You either We're either going to get you expelled <laughs> or you're going to start listening exclusively to the Fargo podcast. Uh, anyway, Fargo Talks Fargo, we're speaking about the symbolism of the Gemini, which Lady Dr. Death has already mentioned, astrology. She's, uh, what is she, a Sagittarius? Is that what she is? Uh, that sounds I don't right. I don't, I don't truck with the star signs myself, but she's, yeah, she has invoked astrology for sure. Mm. As a Gemini myself, I found this connection very interesting. The colors for Gemini are red and green. Everywhere in the show, there's dual colors of red and green, um, uh, guy's name in the there's a guy's name in a Fada family is Gemini. I don't know that I know who Gemini Fada is, but apparently hmm. he's dressed in mostly red. Is there something there or not? Um, yeah, I I mean Noah Hawley is big into colors and symbolism and thematically tying characters to things, right? Yeah. Like Canon Fada, you know, <laughs> he's, absolutely. He's, he definitely leans into that stuff. So like. To the fact now, I don't. I, I did some research on what Gemini like means, star signs, and like there's a lot of different stuff. But the thing that kept on coming up the most was dual nature. Um, huh. So I wonder. I, I guess I need to find out who this character is. Start paying attention to them. I, I guess that's what I'm saying is like we need to maybe be on the lookout for that because you know, uh, so, uh, like some kind of spy, some kind of double agent could certainly turn the tide in the war. So if if there he's being coded as such, perhaps we should pay more attention to it. So. I've got an alternate theory here on what's going yeah? on. Yeah, uh, because I noticed Josto this episode wearing some wearing a red coat, like a subdued red coat, but some violently red socks in that rabbi mm. scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also noticed the wreath behind uh, them on the wall. 
I noticed that it's December. I noticed that it's Christmas time. Um, this could just be oh. stylistically, you know, they they want to evoke Christmas in everything they're doing. Hence the red and green. They're playing the Saint Nick card, eh? Yeah, yeah. You got to. It's <laughs> December. That's true. He does have a point. He does have a point. So uh, we we can blame Christmas, but let's keep an eye on this Gemini guy for sure and see if things shake out uh, going forward. Dave McBee, I love that the show is back, and I've gone back and rewatched season one, and I'm now in the season two. You mentioned a number of times that a UFO was too outrageous of a deus ex machina. Of course, it was one, but they did lay the groundwork for the UFOs in the very first scene of season one and spread sprinkles throughout the season. It's not enough to warrant the involvement of a UFO in a shootout, shootout but looking back, it isn't out as left field as you may remember. Uh, anyway, keep up the good work, guys. Even though we get episodes late here in Australia, I can't wait for it to drop each week. Well, I appreciate that. And as far as the UFO, it's like I did record 20 some hours of my thoughts on on season two when it was happening. And like, I don't want to gainsay old Aaron because uh, uh-huh. I, I mean, I had my emotional rea- reaction and, and you're not wrong. It wasn't like it came out of left field. It's more of like, you know, did it justify the warrant of the involvement? And like, honestly, we are outliers in this opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to convince people to feel a way about a thing. I'm just telling you how I felt about it. Because um, honestly, season two, most people like way better in season season three, as far as IMDb ratings, as far as like the general feeling, as far as I can tell from like the Reddit community. Um, I just, you know, I'm an outlier. I, I like season three better. So I think season three might be my favorite, even better than one, which I loved. Yeah, I Outside mean, Vargas is so good. I, I just, yeah, I've never seen a bad guy like that. <laughs> Uh, and it had like it, and it did have its metaphysical stuff too, but, and it was kind of more out, you know, out there and out of left field, but it, I felt like it wasn't as pivotal. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a giant hypocrite when it comes to, to I don't know. It's opinions. been so long, right? It's been three years since I've even seen that season, let alone seasons two and season one. Um, I don't know which is my favorite. For my defense, I will just suggest playing the entirety of the penultimate episode of season two Fargo podcast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's all I can do, I guess. Yeah. Um, Mark writes in and says, Hey guys, I got to thinking about how uh, it is that Dr. Senator and the consigliere of the Fada family always end up at that diner whenever they need to talk. Does Dr. Senator eat there every morning? Does he just happen to have open office hours where the consiglieres can just come and talk things out when needed? Or they both end up just going there whenever there is some event that seems to need their attention? Modern times, this is easily remedied with cell phones, but I just don't understand how they end up there together so often. Uh, love the show, among with so many others. Department of Homeland Security, Better Castle, Watchmen, just to name a few. Appreciate all that loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, glad to have you along with Fargo, too. What's your take on this? How, how, what's going on at uh, Spud's Diner? So I feel like Spud's is the home base of Dr. Senator. Um, he spends a lot of time there. He he can be found most often at Spuds, and everybody knows it. And I don't think it's a secret. Um, you've got guys like if you look at the way that the meetings with the consigliere went down, and versus this one, right? Doctor Senator goes to this place after hours. I th- I think after hours, although yeah, that's the thing. Coffee, we don't know, I, but... I don't know. Hey, coffee. People drink coffee all hours of the day. It's true, Usually. but she's asking him, like, oh, do you want a cup of coffee? I, I feel like that's his usual, you know, he'd be coming in around this time, sitting down. Um, mm-hmm. The last time the guys were there, right? He had his whole crew there, um, kind of watching the windows and watching the doors. 
this time he's there alone. I don't know if he got called in. Uh, it's tough to say. I, I don't know that we have enough info. And I feel like this is one of the cannon's fronts. Like they own this place in the same way that like they own the funeral parlor or like the For Italians sure. own Joplin's, Joplin's, yeah. Joplin's uh, uh, sundry store. Yeah. Um, and the way Cannon owns whatever that backroom numbers deal is. Like that's this like, yeah, you're right. This is Dr. Senator's kind of, you know, this is like Stringer Bell hanging out at the mortuary in season two and three of The Wire. Like this is just his his base of operations. But yeah. I think all those other sa- uh, explanations you give are satisfying too. Like, Maybe uh, now that they got exchanged sons, it's not a bad idea for the consigliaries to meet, get a working relationship, um, mm-hmm. you know, establish that back, back that back channel of communication um, in times of peace. Um, maybe I mean they don't have cell phones, but they do have fucking pots lines, plain old telephone lines. You know, mm-hmm. just hey, uh, we got some shit to talk about. Uh, the dirty birds are flying. Meet at Spuds, and then they just meet there the next day or the you know whenever. Like, yeah. I- yeah, I don't think it's mysterious, but I like I like your idea that this is just this is just Doc's office, man. It feels like that's right, but I he's don't know. not at home, and if he's not meeting with Loy, he's just down at Spuds, keeping an eye on things. Yeah, making sure the town's running right, seeing the people, people coming in need needing help or whatever. Uh, that's that's what he's there for. Gary from Minneapolis says a final email says something has not been rubbing me the right way with Chris Rock's character Loy. I've seen a similar sentiment on the Fargo subreddit and heard it in your podcast, but it's always nebulous. I think one of you said that they aren't buying the character. At first, I thought it was just difficult for uh, Chris Rock to take his distinctive voice seriously in a dramatic role. Every time he revs up and starts yelling, it's the same voice that delivered the Toss Salad Man bit to me, and it kind of breaks immersion. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Yeah, I definitely hear that, too. A few episodes in and the feeling has passed, but I think what's bothering me most is that Loy is not consistent within the Fargo universe. Fargo is built on flamboyant and extremely flawed characters. Those that are level-headed and competent are surrounded by cartoon characters holding them down. Ma Gerhardt is a great example of this, as are the previous uh, cop protagonists. Loy is super competent, expressing keen insight and analysis in the situations. He knows that the stick-up isn't the Italians. He has the idea for credit cards and their effect on consumer spending. His rapid deconstruction of the OCD cop seems like it shouldn't have, uh, should have brought in some consequences from the racist 50s cops, but it didn't. I don't think the character has been wrong about anything thus far. The closest thing to a cartoon character on this side is the henchman that looks like Lamont from Sanford and Sons. Uh, Leon, I think is who he's talking about. But the balance still seems quite off. I wouldn't call Loy a Mary Sue, as this episode shows he can be brutal, threatening uh, to paint a couple's kitchen with their blood and threatening their daughter. I also wouldn't say he fits the magical Negro trope, since he's definitely his own character and isn't steeped in some kind of shitty stereotypes. I just find he's simply too competent and held back only by society's racism. He even faces down an angry black mama, even her mama, a very powerful trope in our media. It just doesn't make for a very compelling character in the universe. Am I off base here, or does he have shortcomings that I haven't seen? Uh, Further, and maybe this is suited for more of the three right turns conversation, but does the use of super competent characters from disadvantaged groups help or harm in the greater social context? The closest trope I can think of here is the tough chick trope from action movies. I understand the instinct is to use these characters as an answer to historical stereotypes, but on the other hand, it takes flaws to make a believable human character. One goes so far as to say that Loy's analytical superpowers are dehumanizing, but it seems to stand in the way of putting people of disadvantaged groups on the same plane as everyone else. Does the canon gang need more goofballs? 
to fit into the Far- Fargo to the fit into the Fargo universe, I think uh is maybe the question Gary's asking. And also yeah. like yeah. is there some anti-racism racism or what what's going on here? What do you what do you got to read on it, Jim? I mean, if if Leon's the goofiest guy you have to to offer up as a crew, yeah, you probably probably could use a little more goofiness um on that side. I think I don't know as as far as like the you know the questions about the the tough uh you know terminator style female uh protagonist I I think like heroes are good to have and I don't know that they always need to be flawed like I having a good good example they don't always need to be super realistic and I I think like look there's nothing realistic about it, some of these characters in Fargo right um yeah, a, a lot of them are nuanced. Um, a lot of them are flawed and intricately written, uh, but not all of them. And I think that's fine. Hmm. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I don't I th- know that it's a problem. Yeah, to, to, no, to I think that there's a lot of ways you can look at this. I, I was, I think it was on, I can't remember what podcast. It might have been Dan Dan Harmon's Whiting Wong's podcast, but there's on, someone on there talking about like the different phases that minority groups have when they they are integrated into like uh, popular culture, like you've got um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you got like the appropriative phase where it's like you know we like the way black people sing and dance, but we're not comfortable having black folks around the white people, so let's hire a, a white man that can sing and dance like a black man and just paint him up black, and there you go. Then you have like stereotypical where it's like, you know what? Let's cut out the middleman. We can actually we're comfortable having the black men sing and dance for us now. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have tokenized where it's like uh, this is this stereotypes. Like the more we get to know black people, they don't fit in these narrow categories. Um, and we're trying to be kind of like woke and progressive. So let's just instead of having a white person, let's let's take that character and just make him black. Nothing else about them. It's just they're just they're just the same like they're a white character except for the black. Okay, they're tokens. Yeah. Then you have authentic depictions where you actually get to know these people, like you know, warts and all, like their struggles, and and, and they they explain the situations. And then you get the accepted phase where it's like you don't have to make the character have this entire long backstory. You can just like the same way like um when yeah. you see a person putting on dog tags in a movie. You don't have to explain what it is, what a soldier is, and like what they might view patriotism and sacrifice. There's like all these ideas that just baked in because we've seen a hundred movies about what it means to be a soldier, good and bad, in between the struggles, the PTS. Like you can start to do that once black characters get to this level. You don't have to have a whole fucking movie about why they are the way they are. It's like they can just have a single thing where they put on a ring and that ring means something or. You know, like, and I think that like Fargo's in an area where there's there's two things. There's some of that where it's like we're still not at the fully accepted thing. So like a black gangster in 1950s, well, you're saying something, right? You're not just telling a story. There's politics involved, right? And then second is, you know, like like in 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 like like in something really silly like Anchorman, right? Uh, you've got this thing where it's boys versus girls. And like if they were ever to make an Anchorman three and the, the concept was the Veronica Silverstone or whatever her name was, Corning's Corningware, Corninghin. Uh, she's gonna get an all female cast of, of anchors in the early eighties or late seventies. 
they would probably not be buffoonish characters, right? Because they're contrasting mm-hmm. like how sharp these women have to be to b- defeat these mediocre buffoons, right? I think there's yeah. a little bit going on there with um with, with this that like if you had a bunch of buffoons in Cannon's group, you wouldn't buy them as successful gangsters because the Italians and the Irishmen and these gangs can have a couple of of idiots. They can survive that. They can be that sloppy. They can be that sentimental. A black gangster can't. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's a little a bit point. what they're they saying too. Is like if you if 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 half a cannon's gang was a bunch of doofuses, you'd be like, well, how the hell are they even competing in this town? Yeah, with all the the the, the other disadvantages. So I I think it's I think they're both a, like a mix of that is like explaining why he is. Pr- yeah, because you're right. Normal Fargo gang would have a lot more. Uh, uh, people to laugh at, and like you know, you would have like Nick Cannon's bust dancing to opera and busting his ass on a frozen sidewalk, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> He'd uh, have a cousin that's talking like Nacho Libre, or I don't know. I, I do wonder. Hootie Tang. Pretty often, when like movie myth becomes too accepted, it, it's like, and it starts yeah. to distort what people think about actual history, right? Like. Yeah. If if you want to actually let's say you're writing a movie and you want to actually get to the heart of some some time period that we no longer live in or some group of people that you don't have firsthand experience with, you can either go get that firsthand experience if it's the group of people with the time period it's tough. You have to do a ton of mm-hmm. research. Sure. Uh or you can lean on the movie myth that's been created, right? And that can feed right. back in to itself and create some distorted view that the population at large has about a time period or a group of people. It, it seems it seems really difficult to get out of that trap. And I, I think like movie myth creation is culturally fascinating um, and maybe detrimental. I, I don't know. I don't know where to weigh that out. It is weird. No, because like you got Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, where like they're they're all wearing green tights, you know, and uh-huh. then like you've got uh, uh, Kevin Costner. Kevin, yeah, you got Kevin Costner's, and they're like, okay, well, let's take Earl uh, Errol Flynn, but let's make it look cooler. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the same essential character, and you got Russell Crowe coming around. It's like, well, actually, if these people were real characters and they're living in like the 10th century AD, they'd look a lot more like Rome. You know, and it's like that now it's like not doesn't look or even act like Errol Flynn at all. And now that's informing the next view that you'll have of of Robin Hood, exactly. Yeah. And the next and the next writer who will have that view because of the movies they saw and incorporate that into the next right. generation's right. views. It's right. this weird because perpetuating thing. And because it, it's also like there's it's impossible to not see the parallels between this season of Fargo and like American Gangster. This thing is insanely yeah. informed by Denzel Washington's head of that that family. Sure. Um, and I, I think that like that you're exactly right. You've got that's like where things become so accepted that you use them as shorthand for so long that then it becomes it, it, it takes on this entirely other meaning. Yeah. Um, like soldiers, a good example, like, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the, the, uh, an audience watching soldiers today would feel very differently about an audience in the fifties watching soldiers, which is differently entirely how we felt in the seventies and eighties watching things about soldiers. So yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's like you, you've got all this stuff that goes into a stew 
and as you said, the myth making. So, um, but I, I think, yeah, all of that is, is, is I think coming together and striking your as like, well, this doesn't, this it's it, it either as feels unrealistic or it doesn't fit quite into the Fargo universe. Um, but I did, you know, the other thing is like the Fargo universe has always been flexible enough to take on the full gamut of, of Coen brothers films and Coen brothers films are also have that like purely serious criminal, you know, they do. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, if, if you go back to like the duel between, uh, Anton sugar and, and, uh, Josh Brolin and, and, uh, no country for old men. Like those are very smart. They're not yeah. making mistakes. They're just skillfully going about their things until one of them, you know, commits an unforced error or whatever, or a forced error. It's yeah, not that, all like wall to wall buffoons, right? No, that's the thing that always amazes me about the Cohen catalog is the breadth of it. It's just like, yeah, they'll do ridiculous, silly things, but they'll also do extremely tightly plotted uh, murder mysteries and thrillers and surrealist stuff. And it, it's just they have written so many different kinds of films that it's hard to pin them down and say, this is what Cohen's is, which I, I think that's a, a advantage that Fargo has, you know, not just taking from advantage. the Fargo film, it's taking from all of it. And it allows them to tell really any kind of story they want to tell. Yeah. With, with the hand, with, with the help of having this cultural shorthand to fully explain it. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's great too. It's um, it's a really flexible universe. And I do agree that yeah. Fargo itself, the TV show, has developed a style. You know, th- there are things that are definitively Fargo, the TV show now. Um, and that's mm-hmm. probably where you're feeling that that dissonance there. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. But, but yeah, yeah it, it, just like imagine open trying to judge. Imagine trying to judge the Cohen films from the first three ones they made, you know, like you've you only <laughs> yeah, got three. Blood Simple <laughs> is so yeah, radically like, different from The Big Lebowski, right? <laughs> right. I, I don't know the exact three, but like... Blood Simple, the Big Lebowski, or like Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, like that's a lot of different tone and skill level and filmmaking and cinematography. So yeah, I but but yeah, I, I appreciate the email, Gary, and it led to led to an interesting discussion. So uh, that's all we have for the Fargo mailbag this week. If you'd like to send in some for consideration, again, Fargo at baldmove.com, or there's always a forums forums.baldmove.com. If you want to get in the Fargo thread and start participating there. Uh, otherwise, man, I think we got a hot gang war in cold Kansas City going down here, Jim. And yeah. what are they gonna? It's it's going to be explosive. What happens next week? I'm sure. Or I don't know. Like you just had the death of a major character. Maybe they need to take a couple breaths. I you got to respond. Yeah, you can't let this slide. It's like, man, are there going to any? Are there going to be any more set building piece episodes throughout the whole rest of the season? This thing could just be a downhill run from here on out. But we'll we'll have to see. We'll be back next week to discuss it, regardless. Uh, and until then, I'm your host, Aaron, and I'm Jim. See you next week. Mm-hmm.